Hello and welcome to the Interference and Influence podcast on Europe. I am your host, Mathieu Fourou, European correspondent in Brussels. Every month, I will meet with a researcher, a diplomat, or a policymaker for one hour conversation on disinformation targeting Europe and initiatives to tackle foreign influence campaigns. Today, we'll get some exclusive insight from a member of the European Parliament who spent three years investigating on Russia, China, and the implications of Qatargate. She'll be sharing her conclusions and the recommendations of her final report with us. Today, I have the pleasure to welcome Nathalie Loiseau. Nathalie Loiseau, you are a French member of the European Parliament and the rapporteur of the Special Committee for Foreign Interference in all democratic processes of the EU, including disinformation. Now, since 2020, this committee that includes elected members of the European Parliament, like yourself, has been investigating hundreds of foreign um, interference attempts and disinformation campaigns targeting the EU, from the fake news about the COVID vaccines to the war in Ukraine. But that was before a major scandal broke out in Brussels just six months ago, the so-called Qatargate, when a foreign country used its money to manipulate and possibly bribe members of your assembly. As the European Parliament just approved your final report, or is about to, do you feel that, like it has become more resilient? Or is it still very much a target for authoritarian regimes trying to influence democracy? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, as you said, uh, our special committee has been working for more than two years on the general framework of foreign interferences, and we learned a lot. Uh, and we make best, best use of what we learned uh, to provide recommendations uh, to all the European institutions to uh, strengthen their resilience. But uh, in a sense, uh, what we were talking about already in previous reports has become a more uh, immediate reality with the Qatar Gate. As you know, Europe makes progress uh, through crisis. Probably we needed our crisis so that our uh, colleagues, other members of the European Parliament, would not believe that we were talking about fiction, but would realize that it was a reality. First, let's be proud of something. Uh, third states pay attention to what we do. This is the reason why they are trying to influence our decisions. Uh, but what we should not be proud of is how easy... It is for third malign states to have covert influence operations within the European institutions. We have built the European institutions with the idea that the more open, the better. This is true towards the citizens, and we probably have to be much more transparent towards our citizens. But we also have to learn how to protect our work from malign external infer interferences. Well, now, yes, uh, the Qatargate caught the parliament by surprise because it is uh, very much an open house where all kinds of non-profits, representatives, and even foreign diplomats meet with MEPs like yourself. Do you think politicians in Brussels have been too naive when it comes to foreign influences? Well, first of all, it's not the misconduct of a few that makes the rule of plenty. Um, 
a huge majority of members of the European Parliament uh, do their work with a lot of integrity, fighting for the interests of their voters, their fellow citizens, and following their own opinions and convictions. And you can decide to support Qatar out of your personal convictions. I have nothing against that. The problem is when it becomes covered, whether it's corruption, as seems to be the case in the Qatar Gate, or other means to influence uh, the decision-making process. And on this, yes, we have been collectively naive. When I entered the European Parliament in 2019, I was elected as the chair of the Defense Committee. And I have a previous life as a senior official in the French administration, a diplomat and a member of the government. So I have a security culture. I know that what I work on may interest others for bad reasons. So I know that I have to protect my work. I was really the Indian in the town when I first asked to have a safe in my office to have a camera monitoring who enters and who gets out of my office. This sort of quite normal things. People started listening to me a little bit before the Qatar gate started. It was because of the war in Ukraine. When we started monitoring what sort of military equipment we were sending to Ukraine, I went to Roberta Metzola and I told her, do you really think we can do our job of members of the European Parliament, scrutinizing what the European institutions are doing in this respect and being in the open so that Vladimir Putin gets all the infos he's looking for. That was the other wake-up call. It took a war and a corruption scandal to have people opening their eyes. Now, you recently declared that lobbyists working with Qatar tried to meet with yourself at some point They, 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 well, they didn't even try to meet me. They threatened me directly. Um, I must be on the right or wrong side of the parliament, I don't know. Never ever uh, anyone tried to either bribe me or force me to be convinced. But quite often I have been uh, criticized, which is fair, but sometimes threatened. Or even um, uh, there were attempts for discredit uh, from foreign countries, not happy with my position. On Qatar, that was very simple. Uh, as the uh, World uh, Football uh, Championship was about to uh, be organized in Qatar, that was clear to me that we should pay attention to workers' rights in Qatar. And I was not more uh, well-informed than others, but it was obvious that it was a good question to ask. And some lobbyists working for Qatar didn't like it. And directly... They wrote to me, telling me that I was endangering the relations between the EU and Qatar and that it would have consequences. Writing this to someone you have never met uh, is a clear threat. But I had threats from uh, Azerbaijan as well uh, because I'm defending uh, the security of uh, Armenian population in Nagorno-Karabakh. I received insults. I was described in fake news as preparing a coup against uh, President Aliyev, alongside with other French politicians. So you have to be proud to know that I'm probably the next president of Azerbaijan uh, with uh, François-Xavier Bellamy and a few others. Uh, I was threatened not to be able to travel to Azerbaijan. 
And then all of a sudden, a, a few days ago, I received an invitation for a, a conference in Baku, which very much looks like a fake conference. But of course, tickets paid, hotel paid, and I won't go. Yeah, so, so the whole gig like de deployed even in the European Parliament. Well, reality is always better than fiction in these sort of things. <laughs> Now, your committee pointed that there are still cases of staff members working at the parliament with Russian citizenship and non-links to the Russian authorities. I mean, one could easily see what could go wrong in here. Right. Uh, I mean, just stating it raises eyebrows and raises questions. Uh, this is the reason why in the report uh, that will be voted very soon, I pushed hard and I had to convince some of my colleagues who very sincerely didn't have the security culture, that when you work on foreign policy, defense, security, or even trade, people working on these topics should simply have security clearances. Full point. Uh, if they were, want to work on different topics, well, that's fine. Uh, but if you have a Russian nationality and uh, the member of the European Parliament you work for works on foreign affairs, That was the case of a trainee who was no other than the uh, daughter of uh, the Kremlin spokesperson, Dmitry Peskov. His daughter was working as a trainee for a member of the European Parliament. Come on. Do you think that was, was like just random, just a mistake or? No, no, I'm certainly, uh, I'm certain it's not the case. If we are looking for trainees, uh, every day I receive let's say, 10 to a dozen candidacy of very good students with a very good background, willing to work uh, for my staff as trainees. And the most difficult part of it is to pick up the right one. You don't have to uh, ask Dimitri Peskov whether his daughter is available. But very recently, when uh, Thierry Mariani was uh, heard by the French Uh, investigation Committee on Foreign Interferences, he was asked why still he has Russian trainees in his office. And he said, oh, because they were in France and they were looking for a job. Oh, come on. Now, in your report, you are suggesting to physically bar anyone related to Russia or China to enter the European Parliament. I mean, what else do you think should be changed in the Parliament's culture and rules to prevent another well, In terms category? of security, my, my idea is not to blame MEPs because, as I said, I'm absolutely certain that 99% of them are, are, are uh, really um, pay a lot of attention to integrity. I don't want to put the blame on them, I want to protect them and I want to protect their work. That means that more security is needed. So when you have high-risk countries, what is a high-risk country? A country that has already been caught using covert means for foreign interferences, cyber attacks, disinformation, espionage, elite capture. We know the names. Let's not fool ourselves. If you talk about China, Russia, Iran, Uh, there's no doubt that they've done it in the past, that they're doing it in the present, that we have to be protected. Uh, more than that, uh, we want to ban uh, side jobs for uh, members of the European Parliament during their mandate for high-risk countries. Mm -hmm. It seems obvious. But, I mean, even working for Huawei is a security issue. And we should just state it. Mm -hmm. 
And we would like to extend what we call the cooling off period for former members of the European Parliament. When your mandate is over, uh, already you have six months during which we cannot lobby for anything, even for the protection of whales or uh, very noble causes, you cannot lobby. Just for ha to have this distance between your mandate and your next activity. But as regards uh, high-risk state entities or entities related to, to high-risk countries, we would like the ban to be permanent. We don't want new Gerhard Schröder coming from the European Parliament. Now, you also call for a ban on friendship groups with non-EU countries. Uh, we know that these groups have always been very controversial, even at the national level. But uh, where do you set the limit uh, to the freedom of an elected MEP? You know, who he can meet, where he can go and travel? Well, at your own expenses, do whatever you want. If you don't pretend that you are talking or acting in the name of the European Parliament, you're a free person. We are in a free continent and our freedom is important. But as soon as you are using uh, taxpayers' money or you go on a mission, observation, electoral observation mission, for instance, Um, or uh, you go on an official delegation, which I do very often as chairing the defense committee every month. I'm somewhere. I'm just back from Moldova and Romania. I always defend the position voted by the majority of the European Parliament, even if sometimes it happens that this is not exactly my position. But my role uh, leading a delegation is to defend this position. And delegations are official. You know who is the chair, how he or she has been elected, who are the members. There are clear rules. And uh, you cannot just decide I'm going to go there. It has to be approved by the European Parliament. Every time I go to Ukraine, the European Parliament gets crazy for security reasons. But finally, I get my approval. Uh, but these friendship groups were and are still non-official. Opaque. You will not find information of who's the chair, who are the members, where do they travel, who pays for the trip. Um, and you don't know what they say and what they do. So it creates a confusion that is, of course, uh, to the benefit of states or regimes or leaders who want to pretend that the EU is on their side when it's not necessarily the case. But there is one exception where I would still like some, some sort of freedom. It's when um, entities don't have international recognition. Well, that's the case of Taiwan, for instance. You have to be able to go to Taiwan because it's a key actor uh, in the international scene, but it's not a member of the United Nations. If you want to pay attention to the situation of the Kurdish population, either in Iraq or in Syria or in Turkey, there is no Kurdish state but there is a coherence on working on the three. Or oh, that's the same with Uyghur. Myself, I, I am a member of the friendship group for Scotland uh, because there is this notion of devolved assembly, of some sort of autonomy, which makes sense. We know that the Scots didn't want Brexit. We know that they want to remain in the single market. So these are obvious reasons, but it has to be transparent. And we have to abide by the rules. Now, talking about transparency, part of your job is to meet with the famous stakeholders, right? Right. Well, at the very core of the European decision-making process. And sometimes it's like, you know, 
open um, NGOs that we all know, you know, uh, environmental NGOs. And sometimes it's really hard to know we, who are behind these this non-profits, um, uh, you know, and that might include obviously a foreign interest. How do you protect MEPs from these influences? How, how can they screen these non-profits or these stakeholders? Well, we have to protect the MEPs and we have to protect our reputation as well because they cannot get scandals started by the, with a fake NGO. Fight impunity. You know, I'm very much involved into the real fight against impunity because I work on Syria and I work on Ukraine. So believe me that fighting impunity is at the core of my work. They never went and they never asked to see me. Never. So it was completely fake. So transparency is the answer. Transparency of who funds which NGO. I know that some NGOs are not happy with what we are pushing for. But real... Uh, Serious professional NGOs have nothing to fear. Transparency is to their benefit, but it also helps us to make a difference between well-established NGOs and others. And if we want to meet with an NGO funded by Russia, I would say, why not? Because you can have a debate and you can uh, contradict what they say, but at least you know it's the case. Right now, because of the situation of Iran, because solidarity and emotion with the Iranian people being put in jail, arrested or even killed because they protest uh, against the Mullah regime, some of my colleagues are falling into a trap and are meeting with representatives of the People's Mujahideen. They, did, they don't even know what People's Mujahideen mean. The names of the NGOs willing to ask for a, a, a meeting is never People's Mujahideen. He's fighting injustice, fighting for Iran, blah, blah. If you know about it, as I do, you can re realize that you, you have a people's mujahideen behind it. So transparency is the first thing. Transparency is in our agenda. I publish um, all my activities every week on social media. Not to say, look, I work a lot. Uh, only to say, if you want to have more information or understand why, Did I meet Google representative before uh, writing my report? I can explain. It's because they say they fight against disinformation. And uh, the very good notion that I learned from when I was a diplomat was trust but verify. Well, now there's one country um, talking about trust that your committee has been working on a lot, and that's obviously Russia. Every week, the EU Stratcom Task Force uh, issues a newsletter You versus Disinfo. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Yeah. Well, I strongly recommend to our, our listeners to have a look at it. Um, it's a, this information review basically shows you the hundreds of fake news spread online by Russia every week. And it's nonstop, right? Um, Europe High Representative Josep Borrell uh, recently said that the war in Ukraine is not only about using explosive bombs, bullets, killing people. It's about the mind of the people. It's about how to conquer the spirits, the intelligence, the understanding of the people. How can you win the war on disinformation when there are just so many lies that are spread online every day? Um, first of all, be aware of what's taking place. So yes, the, the website you, you, you mentioned, you versus Disinfo, is very uh, useful. I wrote a book and it took me 500 pages to describe uh, what's at stake. I called it the war that we didn't see coming because it's a war. It's a hybrid war. And uh, a few days ago, I was in Moldova. I'm certain that 
Russia will not attack Moldova militarily, but it is attacking Moldova every day through hybrid war, meaning disinformation, uh, elite capture, uh, cyber attacks, fake bomb alerts. It, it is meant not to be believed, this disinformation. It is meant to make people crazy. It is meant to uh, blur uh, reality versus opinions and to make us believe that we are so divided that our democratic model is not the good one. You have to remember 2014, beginning of the destabilization of Donbass. Uh, 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 a plane is shot in Donbass, which was a civilian uh, Malaysian Airlines fly flight going from Amsterdam to Kuala Lumpur. Uh, it's shot, uh, more than 200 passengers die. And most obviously, it comes from Donbass and from pro-Russian separatists or Russian soldiers. Immediately, Russian disinformation blurs the whole thing and say, could be the Ukrainians, could be anything, it could be an accident, one never knows. And for years, we didn't pay that much attention to the fact that Russia had shot a Western uh, aircraft with hundreds of Dutch passengers until the moment finally a judicial decision was taken and, and made things clear. But this time uh, spent, and energy spent by Russia, just diverted our attention uh, about something very serious. This is ongoing. So first, be aware. Um, second, support a real serious job made by journalists. Look at the war in Ukraine. This is probably the moment where Russia is in trouble about this information. Because now that there are professional journalists on the ground, it's much more difficult to lie because you have people risking their lives uh, and showing the truth. Look at Bucha. They have tried to say that it had not happened. I was in Bucha a few days after uh, the atrocities were discovered. I was there where when bodies were uh, taken and shown to the families. I can never forget this moment. So having people saying it didn't happen was basically very difficult. They tried, but it didn't really work. And uh, it was uh, very early in the war where Russian troops raped, tortured and killed hundreds of civilians. And the Russian disinformation tried to spread the word that it had not happened, or maybe it was the Brits or the Ukrainians who killed their own citizens themselves. But of course, having journalists, having witnesses on the ground, I went myself to, 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 to make things clear. Uh, so a professional journalism, pl pluralism of media, transparency of, on the ownership of media as well, because you never know who pays for what. Um, media literacy, we, also, we always say for young people, not only. Uh, a number of old people, uh, retired people, are on Facebook and try to ten, tend to believe that when it's written, it's true. So media literacy for seniors is good as well. Or you know this very famous former French newspaper, François, doesn't exist anymore as a newspaper. It's a website and it's built widely documented that it fuels conspiracy theories. But if you are above 70, you see it's written in Francois, you believe it's true. So this sort of literacy is important, of course. Um, 
social media platform, the Digital Service Act is the first tool. That is to say that we want not only uh, nice speeches, but deeds about how uh, contents are, are being moderated, how disinformation is being labeled, how deep fake are being signaled. So far, um, it's not yet uh, implemented. It hasn't started. There are very bad signals coming from Twitter, obviously, because they want to go out even of the code of good practices, which was voluntary and not very strict. What, what can I do about that? Like, if Elon Musk wants to stop fighting disinformation... If we don't convince him uh, in his heart, we will convince him in, in his wallet. And this is what DSA is about. If you don't abide by the rules of the DSA uh, on the European market, and we have the strength, we are 450 million Europeans, the fines uh, that uh, Twitter faces are no more an anecdote. It can be up to 4% of its turnover. And believe me, uh, you, you think twice. But I'm talking about Twitter. It's true with Meta. It's true with TikTok and others. We have strong uh, uh, question marks about TikTok because first data are being transferred to China. And there is no certainty, to say the least, that uh, protection of personal data um, is uh, observed by, by China. We know it's not, actually. And uh, we know that moderation of content uh, made in China means that you cannot talk about Tibet or Xinjiang or Hong Kong or Taiwan. So uh, you talk only about things that are agreed by the Chinese Communist Party. So this is not the way we see things. This is why Europe is important. Uh, for So far, the U.S. is the far west. China is a repressive regime where there's no freedom of expression. And we have to find uh, the middle ground where we protect freedom, but we are protected from foreign malign actions, which look very much like a war that doesn't accept to be called a war. But now your report back in uh, March 2022 pointed out that this platform directly benefits uh, from the spread of disinformation. The worse it is, the more fake it looks, the more success it's going to have, the more clicks it's going to have. How, how can you deal with that? Um, first expose. Yesterday we were discussing uh, in the European Parliament, in the Special Committee, uh, they found out uh, what was found out by the um, uh, team of journalists uh, who expose Tim Jorge. Um, and it's very interesting because there are two different companies, businesses actually, in Israel. Um, this is disinformation and manipulation for hire. You pay the price and you get results. Paying the price means that bots spread disinformation on uh, social media. The journalists from Forbidden Stories who worked on the topic very easily found the number of bots spreading disinformation. How come very professional journalists, but just journalists, found out so easily and not the platforms? It means that they were not paying attention. This is why the, the Digital Service Act is important, because we want them to pay attention, to fight against fake accounts, uh, to fight against obviously organized, massive disinformation campaigns. They did it a little bit during the pandemic because they realized that it was a question of life and death. But 
Isn't Ukraine a question of life and death? Are not conflicts in Africa a question of life and death? I think they should pay more attention. And in the case that you mentioned, that was ex exceptionally grave because we are talking about manipulating elections, right? Mm. This consortium of journalists, including the, the Guardian and some other, found out that this uh, company Israel, just for money, wa was okay and was ready uh, uh, to, to manipulate possible elections right. in, and in, did it. in Africa and postpone, get the whole process uh, postponed, which is absolutely terrifying. And you have very clear tariffs for what you want. Uh, the price for a bot, uh, for a number of bots, the price for paying a politician, the price for organizing a demonstration, uh, the highest price is for, to postpone an election. Now, talking about propaganda, you wrote a nice book on disinformation called La Guerre qu'on ne voit pas venir, or The War that no one saw coming. In this book, you quoted Harvard's, uh, Harvard sociologist Kathleen Kelly, which proves that false news travels six times faster on social media That's real news. And that's terrifying. I mean, how can everyone tackle with this? Well, uh, algorithms are responsible for this uh, because algorithms um, favor emotions, as it was also well documented by uh, American searchers. Uh, the emoji which is most favored by algorithm on Facebook is anger. It's not, uh, I'm happy, uh, I'm enthusiastic, uh, I'm, I like it, I love it. No, I'm angry. It will, uh, the algorithm will give it to this content more visibility because it provides more engagement. Angry people are the target of business. There's a business of fueling anger. And Russia knows it and loves it because they don't always take sides. Well, they took side in favor of Trump against Hillary Clinton. This is well documented. But what did they do in 2016 in the American election? They fueled divide. They invented fake groups of uh, activists in favor of Black Lives Matter on one side, another fake group of activists of White Lives Matter on the other, and they organized a meeting at the same moment at the same place to make sure that at some point they would physically fight. And the idea was to demonstrate that democracy was weak and uh, about to die and that repressive regimes like the Russian one was the future of humanity. And what can we do? I mean, yesterday I was reading the EU versus Disinfo newsletter that I mentioned before. Uh, and I must say that the EU stratcom force now is fully confronting the Kremlin propaganda. Mm -hmm. Uh, responding with a mix of humor, fact-checking, and even challenging Mr. Putin's lie and naming him, right? Uh, do you think that's the way to go for Europe? Well, let's have a look at what others have been doing, others who are more exposed or more aware for uh, quite some time. And I would name uh, Ukraine and uh, Taiwan. You see the quality of Ukrainian communication. And it's not only Zelensky, of course. Uh, President Zelensky is extremely good, but the whole uh, communication army, if I may say, of Ukraine makes you um, like what they say because there is humor, because it's very rapid, because it's very uh, close to the facts. Um, that's the same in Taiwan. And it's not decided by the president of Taiwan or by, or by an administration. It's uh, this notion that it's a civil society challenge. So um, when disinformation floods into Taiwan, meaning daily, 
from China. Uh, people, citizens, face it, react, and if the reaction is smart, good, funny, uh, easy to understand, it's going to be pushed with the help of the administration, but not created by the administration. Because look at us in the European institutions. Do we know how to communicate? Tell me, you're oh, a journalist. Don't comment about that. It's a disaster. <laughs> it's a pure disaster. Our press releases look like they are written by ChatGPT. They are so boring that I have to force myself to read them. <laughs> so um, we have to reinvent completely because it's a battle for public opinions and it's important. So catchy communication, reactive. Yeah, absolutely. And also proactive. Let's be proud of what we are doing. If we only react to what others say, they will be the winners. Defending yourself is always more difficult. But if we are simply able to say, we are super proud of what we are doing, of course there, are room for, there is room for improvement everywhere. But just an example, when uh, COVID started, there was all this information, this information campaign or propaganda campaign triggered by China that they were helping uh, third countries with masks and um, uh, respirators. It was especially the case in the Balkans. And I could find images of planes landing in Belgrade with Chinese flag, uh, saving Serbia. But I was aware, because I work in the European Parliament, that the EU was doing the same and that we have this civil protection mechanism and Malenarchi was sending hundreds of masks and everything to to uh, Belgrade. So uh, I called the commission. I say I'm desperately looking for images of the EU plane landing in Belgrade because we've done it first, actually. And the answer was, we didn't do it because we thought it was not needed. And I screamed. And I finally found it on the internet. It took me two days. So you want to get the local European delegations involved? Sure. Yeah, and, and professionally, because it's not... Enough to say to ambassadors, you have to communicate. I've been a diplomat myself. I've seen it in the French Foreign uh, Service. You say to an ambassador, you have to communicate. He will take pictures of him in the garden, shaking hand with a leader. Who cares? Not me. But at the moment, he's doing a number of very important things he's really doing. And people would like to know. Let's do it. For instance, when Europeans were able to evacuate their fellow citizens from Khartoum, this was strategic autonomy in the making in plain sight, except we didn't say it. But we, we, in Kabul, we were dependent on American logistics, thanks to them, but that was a little bit frightful for us to be so dependent. In Khartoum, we were able to do it ourselves. Well, let's be super proud. Now, Russia's propaganda is targeting uh, European interests, not only here in Europe, but also in Africa. Uh, I'd like to show you a video uh, which was attributed to the notorious Wagner Group, which is both a Russian private military company, but also a key player in the field of online disinformation campaigns. And this content was spread on social media in Mali and is targeting specifically the, the French military.
which is some French zombies. And then comes Wagner. Soldiers in the helicopters on the side of the Malians. Pure propaganda, right? With a huge Russian uh, accents, obviously. I mean, this video probably was uh, watched by millions in, in Western Africa. You know, it's done in French. It's a, it looks cartoonish. Mm -hmm. But this is pure Russian propaganda attacking yeah. the, the, the interest of, of um, member states of Europe. How can you counter this kind of powerful online campaigns? Well, you're right to stress that Wagner uh, is at war, uh, not only in Ukraine, uh, but against us through uh, every single means. And in Africa, Wagner has uh, mercenaries and has also media companies. And it's not always online, because not everyone uh, in Africa has internet. You have radios created by Wagner uh, in the Central African Republic, for instance. You have newspapers. You have movies. You have an action movie, The Tourist, uh, which was like a, a classical action movie, except that it was a nice guy from Wagner going to uh, rescue uh, African lives. Um, and you have um, African activists paid by Wagner, very famous so-called pan-Africanists like Kemi Seba or Nathalie Yamb. Uh, both of them are, it's very well documented that they are paid by Russia and by Wagner. And they're very active on Twitter. And they are very active. Uh, well, you, you believe that they have a lot of followers. Well, first you have to make sure that these are real followers and not uh, fake accounts. But still they are active and they pretend to be anti-colonial, which is fine. But they love one sort of colonialism, it's the Russian one, which is, which is quite weird. Um, what can we do? First we have to protect... Um, very simple things. Or uh, we have EU military missions on the ground in Africa, which are targeted as well. They have to be able to uh, have secure communications with uh, the headquarters in Brussels. That was not the case not so far, not so long ago. They have to have their own uh, assessment of disinformation, and they have to be present. Um, they have to do what they do already, but even more, much more. This is what they call civic. This is civilian actions, uh, uh, dealing with uh, how you work with your civilian environment, helping uh, NGOs, helping uh, uh, young people, um, giving them some visibility. We should not go into propaganda because this war is silly. We don't want to lie. We don't want to become Russia. Uh, but uh, we have to fight against these uh, lies. I have to say that some journalists do a terrific job on this. Maybe you remember that in Mossi, in Mali, there was a video which was spread on the internet by Russia again, uh, pretending that uh, the French troops before leaving Mali had killed a number of civilians and buried them. Um, all this was fake. And journalists... Um, especially Wassim um, Nas from uh, France 24, mm -hmm. did an investigation and were able to demonstrate that it was made by Wagner. And it did it quite rapidly, and it was rapidly put online. So basically, it killed the narrative of the pro Russian propagandists. We have to be present, we have to be aware, um, and uh, we have many things to say. We should not be afraid of saying that. And, of course, sanctioning Wagner 
uh, and all the entities related to Wagner. This is something we have started doing in the European Union, um, but we still lag behind. There's a number of businesses. We have to make sure that if one of the Wagner entities is sanctioned, if you are, let's say, a European company dealing with this entity, you, your activity will be legal. Because tell me how Wagner ships its shipments from Africa to Russia. Because there is spoliation and exploitation of diamonds, gold and other minerals. Tell me which uh, logistics companies work with them. Let's make them aware that they are dealing with a sanctioned Russian business. And that might make a difference. Now, closer from us, um, the um, EAS, the Diplomatic Service of the European Union, has launched a task force uh, to tackle disinformation in the Western ba Balkans, right? You mentioned Belgrade be before. Uh, yeah, right our borders, right? Serbia and Bosnia, the Kremlin propaganda is flourishing. Do you think supporting independent media, help local reporters, debunking fake news might be a solution? You know, OSINT is getting big these days. Yes, of course. Uh, and OSINT uh, is... Uh Something I use daily, and I have to pay tribute to uh, the guys uh, and girls who are good enough to tell me where this picture comes from and whether it's accurate and so forth, so on and so forth. Uh, you, you quoted uh, Western Balkans and especially Bosnia. In Bosnia, it's an open door for Russia, but also China, Turkey and Qatar. This is their playground. Uh, and it's in the center of Europe. It's not far away. So uh, it's because we have been absent that there was a vacuum and the vacuum was filled by others. We have to be more present and civil society has to be supported. Freedom of media, we come back to it. And we are very much concerned when we see that, for instance, in Serbia, freedom of media is uh, threatened. This is the reason why the accession process to the European Union is now really clearly linked throughout the process to what we call rule of law, including pluralism of media, freedom of media, independence of media, because it's the key to fight against disinformation. Remember, on February 24th, 2022, that is the first day of the Russian war of invasion in Ukraine, one of the most famous uh, newspapers in Belgrade uh, had this headline, Ukraine is attacking Russia. That Can you believe crazy. it? It was just uh, the other way around. This was pure disinformation in the open in a very mainstream uh, newspaper uh, in Belgrade. Now, you mentioned Moldova before, and Europe just decided to launch a partnership mission in the Republic of Moldova. And interestingly, uh, and interestingly this civilian mission will be focusing on hybrid threats. No? That's, 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 that's very new, and we know that Moldova is a prime target for Russian interference. Could this country be the, the laboratory for Europe to counter foreign influence in our continents? I was in, uh, in Kisinau and I met with the uh, first members of this civilian mission. And indeed, it's a first. We've never done it before. Providing support, advice, uh, expertise, equipment to a country to counter hybrid war. And uh, as I told you, a hybrid war in Moldova... Uh, is uh, going on daily. It's disinformation. It's also uh, politicians who are being bought by Russia. And it's well documented. Corruption. Corruption. 
uh, demonstrators who are being bought. And Moldova is the poorest country in Europe, so you don't need that much amount uh, of money. But also fake bomb alerts just to play with the nerves of the population. And you know that Moldova is uh, has a border with U Ukraine. So when there's a bomb alert, you never know it's if, if it's fake or not. Uh, and all these sort of things, energy, uh, blackmail, everything. So helping Moldova is necessary because Moldova has decided to uh, be a candidate to join the European Union. There were 80,000 people demonstrating uh, on the main square in Chisinau last weekend in favor of the European Union with European flags. So the reality is very different. Massive. Massive. And believe me, Chisinau is a small town. <laughs> so that's really massive. And it was very peaceful and very enthusiastic. So we need to help them and we need to learn from them. Because if they are still there, is Moldova, if Moldova is still independent and pro-European, with a pro-European government, is because they must not be that bad at countering disinformation. And we should not come with arrogance and teach them what they have to do at a moment where we are uh, daily attacked as well, and sometimes we don't care and we don't pay attention. We also have to learn from these countries how you survive in such a hostile environment. Well, uh, and, and to talking uh, about that, as we are approaching the end of this episode, um, you know, resiliency, right, is a key word in here. Now, we're just a year from the European election and looking at our neighboring countries, it's clear that Russia is trying to influence local elections wherever it can, whenever it can. Do you think that the European authorities are more prepared now than they were when you started your hearings three years ago? Or are you concerned about possible foreign interference targeting the 2024 election? Well, for 2024, fasten your seatbelt. You have American election, election in Russia, election in Ukraine, election in the UK, European election. Good luck. Uh, it's going to be uh, the biggest of all parties for uh, foreign interferences. We know more things. We've worked on um, uh, targeted political advertising, for instance, after Cambridge, Cambridge Analytica and Brexit and uh, an American election. We know about the hacking of political campaign. It happened in the US. It happened in France with the Macron leaks. We know about it. Uh, we know about elite capture. Uh, the very fact that there are these investigation committees in national parliaments or at the European Parliament level shows that we are aware. But we don't always realize how cheap it is to manipulate an election. And we don't always realize, we don't always listen to what our adversary are, are, are talking about. When you hear every day Russian authorities or Russian media saying that the West and democracy and the EU are the enemy, okay, we're not at war with Russia, but obviously they are at war with our model, our political uh, model. So let's protect it. It's not protecting politicians, it's protecting the choice we made. We inherited from a, a model of democracy and peace. We, in our generation, didn't fight to get it, but now we have to be ready to fight to protect it and keep it. 
well, not taking democracy for granted, right? Exactly. Well, thank you so much, uh, MEP Nathalie Loiseau, for coming today. And uh, to our listeners, please uh, stay tuned for more episodes with more experts in Brussels to uh, tackle the important issue of disinformation. Thank you very much. Nathalie Loiseau, thank you so much for joining us today. This podcast is an independent, self-funded project. So if you like what you heard, please subscribe and take a minute to rate this episode and leave a review on your favorite platform. I'm excited for you to join next month for a new episode. In the meantime, you can learn more at interferencepodcast.com. <laughs>